Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Dwayne Brown, the CEO and head of strategy for Take Some Risk, an e-commerce brand that specializes in growth strategy, PPC marketing, and revenue optimization. Over the years, Dwayne has had the opportunity to work with brands including Asus, Birdies, Pelicase, Jack Wills, Rosenrex, and FTD Proflowers. On this episode, Dwayne and I talk about what makes a good landing page, PPC, PC marketing, the value of being well-traveled, and much more. Here's our interview now. Dwayne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to have you. We've already been chit-chatting a little bit before we got started. So first off, why don't you tell me about your e-commerce brand, Take Some Risk? Yeah, yeah. So like we work both with e-commerce brands uh, to help them scale up and do more uh, what they already want to do, which basically makes more money. Uh, and then last year, we launched our own you know, mini e-commerce brand, which revolves around uh, selling digital products. So in this case, we sell a lot of like courses and programs and stuff like that. Uh, we did it for two reasons. One, there's tons of people who want to hire us, but we don't have the budget. So being able to product size our knowledge made a lot of sense and do it on Shopify because Shopify is a great program. Uh, and then on the other flip side, since 90% of our clients are on Shopify, it seems like a good initiative a couple of years ago to really spend more time on the other half of the platform. So that other half being things that are not marketing related that we wouldn't necessarily touch, you know, uploading products or organizing products and building the website and stuff like that. And even though we don't do that stuff, you know, I think us and our team have a better experience with that. Uh, it just makes us better when it comes to working with clients as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally see that. I kind of want to break down. My goal is to break down this conversation into the different types of services that you provide and kind of peel back the layers on them a little bit. So to start off with strategy and consulting, right? So part of the ideation sessions in the strategy and consulting phase of your services um, includes how to better streamline a client's processes. What specifically are you uh, attempting to streamline in that process? And, and how can companies heed your advice to the to the fullest value? Yeah, I mean, obviously for every client, what we streamline is a little bit different. But oftentimes when, let's say you're a 100,000 a year revenue business, or two or 300,000 a year business, those processes you have, you kind of take with you as you get to half a million and a million. Um, so processes could be everything from getting data from one platform to another platform. So from you know Shopify to Clavio or Shopify to Google Ads or Shopify to Facebook. So helping streamline you know, how, how data goes from platform to platform. Also, sometimes clients have multiple apps that do the same thing, but don't they don't necessarily realize it. They've got the, for lack of a better word, the Shopify main integration app that Shopify promote, but then they have another app that does something that's very similar, the exact same thing. We often call them the app graveyard. You go into anyone's Shopify store and there are apps that they've installed, but they don't use and they still run. And so get rid of some of those apps and saying, okay, what are the things that we're trying to achieve with apps and how do we minimize the apps we're using so there's less code on the site and the site goes faster, but maximize our potential for using those apps to streamline our processes. You know, if a client isn't on, let's say, Shopify Plus, you know, streamlined stuff could be, you know, figuring out, you know, which clients are VIP, which clients are not VIP. So some stuff around like reporting and stuff like that. So we try to sort of figure out what clients are trying to achieve and, and how to either move around data or minimize the amount of apps they're using to achieve the outcome they want, which is like just freeing up their time to, to work on more stuff. And obviously that's a little bit different if you're on Shopify Plus versus not Shopify Plus, but the process is the same in figuring out, okay, well, these are things you've been trying to do with apps and which of these apps actually do it? And let's get rid of apps that don't make a lot of sense. And how often should a company be doing that? Should there be, you know, a poll 
every four years or, or is that something that should be paid attention to every week, every month? I mean, what what should that trimming of the fat, those milestones look like? You know, I think once a year is a pretty good thing to do because it's, it's an easy cadence to remember. Let's say your slow time in the company is like August, you do your spring cleaning, quote unquote, in August. And I think spring cleaning also involves things like going into ad accounts, Google Analytics, removing access for people who don't work at the company, for old agencies, you know, really tightening up your security as well. Because oftentimes brands will just leave people with access forever. And I'm like, well, you haven't worked with this person in five years. Why do they still have access to all your data? So we think a yearly thing is a really good cadence. Some big brands maybe do it a little bit more often, but I think if everyone did it at least once a year, uh, that's better than what most people do right now, which is usually they don't do it at all because it just gets to the bottom of the to-do list. No, I think that's really, really sage advice. Another part of the services that you provide is attempting to impart the value of a good landing page to your clients. And, and part of that is thanks to your experience working at Unbounce. Can you elaborate on why a good landing page is valuable? Yeah. I mean, I think if anyone is old enough to remember The Simpsons when Homer found out about the internet and he built his own landing page... Remember that episode? It was on a very good or pleasing landing page. And so, you know, I often think it's kind of like people who've got an ugly baby. Everybody thinks their baby is beautiful. Some babies are not beautiful, right? Landing pages are the same way. Everyone thinks their landing page is beautiful when some landing page is actually just not beautiful. And so if you've actually got a beautiful landing page that your customers like, and it's not about whether I like it or you like it or Alex like it, it's about if your customers like it, then that means you're going to have more people converted. We often have to remove our tunnel vision when it comes to looking at things we've made and, and really analyze it from a critical point of like, is this going to be good for customers and is it going to get customers to convert? You know, that often means having a landing page with copy that speaks to the customer's need, the customer's pain point. You know, for a good example, we've got a client that sells women's pajamas. You know, it's often talking about things like our pajamas will keep you from being unsweaty at nighttime. So it's like moisture wicking. Or it can help you get a good night's sleep if you've got like hot flashes, menopause. You know, it's really digging into why people want to buy a product and having that speak to those values, those pain points on the landing page. Up to including, you know, most women are always really happy when their pair of pants comes with pockets. It seems like a trivial thing to us men, but most things for women don't have pockets. And so when you tap into that, you want the landing page to reflect that so it speaks to the people and it creates a really good experience. And so making sure that your landing page isn't speaking to you as a merchant or an e-commerce manager or to me as an advertiser is really important because it's all about your customers at the end of the day. It's not about you or I or anyone else. So the the difference between a good landing page and a bad one, is it as simple as bad copy versus good or it's speaking to a customer versus not? I mean, what what are those those differences between a good and bad landing page? Yeah, I think at a high level, there's that because I think that's the biggest issue we see with with landing pages we look at is often people write it from their own perspective, what they think customers want versus what customers actually want. And then once you get the copy down, I mean, it really comes down to design stuff and layout and how you organize all the content. You know, some people are going to organize in content, some people are not, you know, everything from like the font you pick to the font size to, you know, the colors you use, those things also matter to making a really nice landing page. Because going back to my original example of Homer Simpson, if you remember the landing page he built, it wasn't very pleasing because there was Tons of animation, tons of things moving. It was hard to read stuff. There was too much going on. So really just thinking as you go from content block to content block on your landing page, you know, does this make sense? Does this content block have a title? Can people read this font? Can people read this text? Oftentimes text can be too small, you know, even for someone who's got like no glasses on it. So it's like ad copy first because that's what people read and see. And after that, it's about font size, colors, layout, design. 
It's far better to have a short landing page that's punchy and makes sense than trying to make a long a long landing page that nobody wants to read and is just ugly to look at. And I, I don't know about you, but glasses are necessary for me. I want to mention to our listeners that Dwayne is wearing the coolest like periwinkle glasses right now that are that are just spectacular. Before we get too distracted, moving on to the the PPC or pay per click marketing area of services. Um, what are some of the discrepancies between the different distribution platforms that you're operating with? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got things like Google and Microsoft on one end, or what people call paid search. You've got things like Facebook, Instagram, Snap, and TikTok on the other end, what people call paid social. You know, oftentimes, you know, you're trying to either push or pull people into your website. Um, you know, with Facebook and stuff like that, you're trying to like push people in your website based on like uh, you showing them an ad. But with, you know, with Google and stuff, you're targeting people based on what they're searching, then you're trying to pull them into your website because they've searched for something you're bidding on from a keyword perspective. You know, I think the big thing that brands need to realize is, you know, when it comes to whether you hire someone in-house or a consultant or a vendor or a freelance or an agency, when it comes to like paid advertising, it's often more like a game of chess than a game of checkers. And what I mean by that is it's often about thinking about what you're going to do and the different moves you're going to do. If you're going to hire someone, they're only going to think about tactics, and all you do is tactics, then you probably won't be as successful as an agency that thinks about strategy, thinks about what we're going to do. You know, you've got a, a to-do list of a dozen items. Making sure you pick the right two or three things to work on that list of a dozen items means you're going to move things forward. Picking the wrong things to work on for Google or Facebook or TikTok or Amazon ads means you're going to either fall behind or not move anywhere. It's kind of like a, a car getting stuck in mud. You can spin your wheel, but you're not going anywhere fast. So I think sometimes people often mistake the idea that like anyone can run ads, but running ads is no different than engineers, uh, lawyers, doctors, you know, any of those people. Like It's a skill. Uh, and either you've got the skill or you don't. Just watching some videos on YouTube or reading some stuff on Google isn't going to make you prepared to actually run accounts at the end of the day. But I think on top of that, you know, the other thing people need to think about is there's a difference between like knowledge and experience, right? Sort of, I've got 10 years of knowledge, so to speak, or some people might say I have 10 years of experience, i.e. I've worked in the industry for 10 years. And experience is great from a length of time. But I think when it comes to experience, people have to figure out what knowledge people have in between there. You know, what did they actually do and what they worked on? Because you could easily have, you know, two years of experience five times because you haven't progressed in your career. And though you've worked for 10 years, you haven't actually gone very far versus someone who's maybe got one year or five experience, or they've got, you know, a two years experience and three years experience, right? They both have that 10 years experience, but the knowledge within that experience of 10 years is very different. And so I think brands need to do a good job of figuring out like, what has this person actually done during that length of time? And can they actually help us achieve our goals? You know, and then I think the other thing I always tell people you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You know, if something's too cheap, it's probably not going to work out. It's kind of like Dr. Nick from The Simpsons. You know, you wouldn't hire him to work on you. Why would you just only hire the cheapest person to run your ad account? I love the analogies that you're using. And, and frankly, I think your reflection on what I call armchair experts is pretty accurate. You know, I, th I think the, the industry can be diluted with people who are who are selling, who are armchair experts selling their experience with little credibility or knowledge due to the fact that that people can have that immediate access to something where a 30 second TikTok video is giving me perceived value compared to someone who's actually had the experience of yourself, who's, who's steadily climbed the ranks, learned what works, learned what doesn't and what have you. 
So in terms of actual PPC, is that more valuable of a metric compared to say like a, a CPM or are those comparable things? And, and if so, why? I think they're just different. Your pay-per-click or your cost per click and stuff like that, like what you pay for a click. You know, that's kind of like what we call like an upstream metric, right? It's, it's a thing that happens, you know, at the top of things. So you've got like your clicks, your impressions, your cost per click, your ad spend, right? You know, if those numbers look good, you then have sort of your downstream metrics, right? You've got like your CPA or your ROAS, you've got your revenue if you're in e-commerce, you've got your return on ad spend. And oftentimes, if, you know, if your downstream metrics are not looking really good and people aren't converting, you then have to look at your upstream metrics to see if there's something wrong there. Are people not clicking on my ad? or the wrong people clicking on my ad. And so they're not like one's more important than the other necessarily. It's just that they serve different functions at the end of the day. Obviously, you know, most people's North Star is going to be either their CPA or their CPL or their return on ad spend. But you need to make sure that everything from upstream to downstream metric-wise really makes sense for you to achieve the results you're going to get. You know, it's easy just to say, well, we're getting lots of clicks and nobody's converting, but you have to figure out why no one's converting. And it could be, you know, the wrong keywords. You're you're targeting the wrong searches. It could be the wrong ad. It could be the website. You know, I was telling someone on Tuesday, you know, the one thing I think with what we do especially, and this applies really to marketing as a whole, but I think especially paid ads, people often think, you know, you put $100 into Google, you're going to get back $500 or $1,000. And the challenge with that is, in theory, you could get back $500 or $1,000. But if your website isn't ready to actually accept a conversion, i.e. you don't have the best website possible, you can do everything right on Google and still fail because your website isn't doing its job. Because we often say that the website is half the work, right? Half the work is getting the ad accounts correct. The other half is what happens once someone clicks on the ad and that post-click experience on your website. And so both of those things need to happen simultaneously in work in order to get the sale with paid ads. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that there is kind of like a prime number in terms of what is going to give me the best return. It's not necessarily 500% on every number. When you give the example of like, if I spend $100, I'm going to get 500 back. That doesn't mean that if I put in $1,000, I'm going to get 5,000 back. So is part of your your role finding out what that kind of like perfect ad spend is to get the best bang for your buck? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, what you call is like the law of diminished return, basically. Exactly. You know, there's a point to where you spend more money and you're actually making less money than if you spent less money. And so, yeah, we work with clients to try to find the balance. Some clients have, you know, more flexible budgets, so they're willing to spend more and see what that ceiling is. You know, other clients are like, I can only afford to spend $20,000 a month. You know, maybe they're Canadian business, maybe they're American business, maybe that's just what their limit is. And so our job, you know, with client B, where it's 20,000 as their limit, it's figuring out how to optimize that for the best outcome possible. Whereas client A, where they had a more flexible budget, you know, our goal is to figure out, okay, what can we spend to hit sort of our profitability, but not go beyond that where we're losing money every month? You know, for some clients, we have, we know their CPA needs to be somewhere between the 30 mark and the $35 mark. And so we're always trying to optimize and increase ad spend while keeping the CPA within that line. And this is like an e-commerce client but we use CPA because they only have you know, really three products across different colors. And so if we optimize for that $30, $35 CPA, you know, we know at the end of the day, regardless of what we spend, we're going to be profitable because there is a limited number of products you can buy on the website. And you mentioned previously, you don't want to garner the wrong clicks. How do you ensure that you're targeting the right audience? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things. I mean, obviously, you can do a bit of research to figure out what keywords you want to bid on if you're doing search campaigns. So Google's got Keyword Planner. You could put in your website. You could put in keywords you think people are going to bid on for that product. 
you know, if you're going to do a performance max with Google or a standard shopping campaign, you're going to want to build what's called a shop and feed. Uh, so very similar to doing your keyword research, you're going to try to figure out if someone's going to search for this product I'm trying to sell, you know, what would they search for and use those keywords they would search for and apply it to your product title and your product description and build on a shopping feed that's based on how people search for products. You know, a good example uh, I'm going to probably talk about next week is like if you sell soap, you know, the scent or the smell that the soap gives off, if it's like a citrus soap, you might want to also put the words like orange or lemon because citrus comes obviously in different flavors. And so put sort of the flavor of the citrus in your product title or in your keyword. So if someone searches for like uh, orange flavored soap or orange scented soap or lemon scented soap, uh, you're more likely to rank for that than if you just put citrus soap, which could be anything. Uh, and it may convert, but it probably won't convert as something that's like orange citrus soap or lemon citrus soap. Um, so what if it's research? What if it's just trying to understand the product and how people search for it and then applying that to either keywords or shopping feeds? Uh, and then Google has what they call a search term reports, so whereas you know you run ads and spend more money, you can see what searches people did to trigger your ads and your keywords. And then you can figure out, okay, if this doesn't make sense, maybe add it as what they call a negative keyword so don't show for in the future. That only really applies to search campaigns and standard shopping. You can't apply negative keywords to performance max just to do to how Google set up the campaign when they launched it. But using a search term report can really help you understand if you're going after the right people or not. No, that search word and uh, SEO type stuff is, is fascinating because you're kind of like trying to solve a problem that doesn't even really exist, or or you're trying to be proactive on how uh, people think. And, and I think there's really uh, something profound in that premeditation. One of the problems with paid advertising, as, as you've already mentioned, is that it's all for naught if those users don't convert. So that brings us to kind of the next stage or the final stage of your services, which would be revenue optimization. How do you differentiate between an unsuccessful advertisement versus a successful advertisement with a poor conversion. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you could just be running a test. So you might be have ad A that's been doing really well for the last couple of months and you have a new idea for an ad copy and you have ad B and you run them against each other and try to see which converts better. You know, sometimes you'll send potentially traffic to a custom built landing page. Um, that's another way to run a test to see if something's going to work or not. Um, but a lot of us trying to figure out, you know, what's working and what's not, what kind of the data you have either in Google Ads or in Facebook or even in Google Analytics, uh, and then use that to figure out, you know, what we should turn off, what should we turn on, what's working. Um, it's a little bit easier, obviously, if you're doing things with the custom landing page. So let's say, you know, I'm a merchant, I'm going to launch a product, you know, June 1st, I'm really hype, hyped about it. Well, today is May 4th, you know, what you probably want to do if you're really thinking about, about things ahead of time is maybe you want to launch things early in the sense that you've got sort of uh, an early access list, right? So you run some campaigns saying, hey, we're launching this product on June 1st. Why don't you give us your email address so we can announce to you on June 1st when the product goes live? Because maybe that person is on the West Coast or they're in Europe and you're based in you know, EST. And so the time zones are going to be very different than the launch. Um, so that's one good way to like test out ideas of who the right targeting is if you do early access ads, because then you can take that list of emails you've collected. If you're putting them into Klaviyo, for example, you can build a separate list of early access people and see if those people actually convert come launch day or, or they convert over the next year because it's a separate list. Oh, that's fascinating. How do you essentially bolster a, a campaign's ability to convert users while it's it's currently active? Yeah. So I mean, there's, there's things you could do. You could obviously look at the campaign to see if it's wasted money. You know, are you spending money on keywords or ads that are not converting? If you're targeting like America, 
are you spending money in certain states that aren't converted? Maybe you want to remove that state. Maybe you spend a lot of money in Texas, but Texas doesn't convert. And all the people convert in like Illinois, Florida, and California. You know, outside of maybe looking at things from a location standpoint, keywords or ads, you know, you may just want to see again, like the search term report, you know, see what's going on there and see if there's things you should remove or not even remove, but add as a negative keyword because maybe Google thinks that like, what someone's searching for is what you're bidding on when the semantics of those two words are very different. You know, I, I, I always use the example of like milk, chocolate, and chocolate milk. Google thinks those are the same thing, but we all know that like when you drink and when you eat. And so maybe you want to add one of those as a negative keyword to your account. Um, so those are some ways you'd look at like optimize it outside of what you'd probably do, you know, on your website as well, if things are not converted as well. And then obviously if things are going well and Google says you can spend more money in a campaign, you can obviously just increase your budget. Uh, and see if there's an ability to continue to acquire clicks and conversions and revenue while increasing your budget. And I don't want to um, focus on on the negative too much or anything, but I've never asked this question. You're a positive enough guy to where I don't think you'd take offense to it. Have you ever had to like totally scratch a campaign just because it, it wasn't, frankly, wasn't working and kind of have to go back to the drawing board? Yeah, totally. I mean, anyone who's done this as long as I am, I mean, doing this for 17 years would have had to do it at some point. You know, I have to tell clients, like, if I could tell you right now what was going to work, I would have won the water and be on a beach sipping Mai Tais or something like that, right? Like, there's no way for me to guarantee I know what's going to work ahead of time. But the part of my job is to test out lots of ideas and find what's going to work and then continue to spend more time and energy on what's working. So yeah, I mean, we've got you know, one client right now where, you know, it's a struggle. I'm not going to lie. They're in a super competitive industry. And so like we decided the other day, we're going to scrap everything that we've done for the last four or five months. You know, things have worked, but not at scale that we want to get to and not as profitable as we want to do. And we're just going to start from scratch. You know, what haven't we done? What could we do? What crazy idea do we don't think would work because maybe it's not in our standard operating procedures? Do we want to give it a try? Because at this point we have nothing left to lose. You know, I often tell merchants and potential clients, even friends, Regardless of what agency or freelancer contract you hire, uh, they can't help everyone. And you may be the brand they can't help, but that means you've got to go to somebody else to get the help for whatever reason. Maybe those people couldn't figure out the ad account or they couldn't figure out the brand and maybe someone else could. And so that's why I say I go back to sort of, it's more about like chess and strategy than checkers is because, you know, you can't help everyone. And sometimes the strategies you propose are just not the right strategy for that brand. Even though they're they're compelling strategies that could then work on the next brand that walks in the door. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes, you know, it is the product, sometimes it is the website, but we're assuming, you know, the website isn't an issue and the product is an issue. You just couldn't crack it for whatever reason. It's just not, you know, your your wheelhouse in this case. I'm interested. So take some risk, right? That's that's been around for about six and a half years. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. How have you been able to scale that brand, your brand, in the last six and a half years? Yeah, I mean, I originally didn't want to start an agency. You know, I always tell like our team this when we do like story time of how we started the company. I originally quit my job in advance because I was just unhappy and I realized staying somewhere to make someone else more money is not going to really make me any more money. And so I just went to freelance. And you know, I told people I was available, uh, and I got a bit of work, you know, in 2017, and some more work in 2018. You know, I think starting your own company is a bit like if somebody decided tomorrow, or even you, Alex, decide tomorrow, I'm going to start my own YouTube channel. A lot of people will give up on YouTube too early. I think there's this research I read last year, and I, I don't think I'm going to correct. I don't think I'm going to say this wrong, but I basically said the point where you reach philosophy is at like 100 videos. And if you can get to 100 videos and they're quality videos, you can find the point where you get more and more people subscribing to your channel. 
and you've had velocity take off where your channel explodes, obviously explode will be different for different people because it'll depend on how many subscribers you have at 100. But often people will give up at you know, 10, 12, 20, 30 videos because they're not seeing the traction they want from YouTube. And I think starting a company is very similar. It's always about sort of the long game. And I think because I didn't want to start an agency when I started, I was just looking to like cover my bills and you know, paying for myself, basically my salary. Uh, and things kind of just went as we go. I said yes to lots of things in 2017. I tweaked a little bit of who we serviced in 2018. I tweaked our pricing a little bit in 2018. Uh, and then 2019 was an okay year, but our first year we lost money. You know, I learned the value of as a boss is maybe sometimes you should let people go if they're not the right fit for your organization. And luckily, we saved enough money in our first two years that 2019 was, was fine to lose money. And then obviously, like everyone else, I couldn't predict 2020 and how it was going to go. Um, I was on a high in Jan 2020. This was going to be a great year. Then obviously, the pandemic happened. Uh, and because we, at that time, we were serving about 50% e-commerce clients and 50% sort of SaaS tech fintech, because we were all locked at home and shopping online, uh, things just exploded out of nowhere between 2020 and 2021 to where like these days, you know, 90% of our business is e-commerce or direct-to-consumer brands or retail brands. Um, you know, a lot of people come from either our network or people find me because of Reddit or podcasts like I'm on right now. And so I just keep on trying to go out there and share my knowledge with the hope that if I share enough knowledge continuously, over a longer period of time and stay in the game long enough, um, we'll have people come and want to hire us versus other people. You know, I'll say, you know, this year, we'll definitely have less leads than we had last year. People are trying to bring things in-house and save costs. Uh, and paid ads is obviously a huge cost between like fees you pay people and money you put on ad spend. One thing I've learned uh, doing this the last 17 years and being through, I guess technically two recessions, if you count 2007 as a recession, is that even though when people are firing, there's always somebody hiring. So you just got to go out there and find the people who are hiring and then work for them. Well, things are maybe a little bit more lean, a little bit tough right now. No, I think that's great advice. And and we were talking before the show about the name of of the company take some risk. Did you want to give us a little a little story time and how how, how that came to be? Because you were mentioned it's uh it's not grammatically correct and, and and I'm interested if there's a story there. Yeah, I mean there definitely is a story, Alex. I mean yeah, so take a risk would be technically what you'd say, right? Grammatically be take a risk. But I realized in life, in order to get to where I was in you know 2017 in January, that I took lots of risks to get there. You know, I moved to Australia and looked for a job, even though I had no connections and I knew no one and I found a job in three weeks doing what I do now, which is obviously paid ads. You know, that went really well. So then I moved to the UK again, really know no one, getting a visa and just hoping I'd find a job with with sheer will and positive that I could make it through. Uh, and I got a series of jobs at startups and you know big agencies like Ogilvy and stuff like that. Uh, my last startup got bought that I worked at, which is really cool. Because our American competitor came over and realized it's easier just to buy us than compete with us at the time. Um and so I realized throughout my life, and sometimes I probably downplay the risks I take. I realize that there are like risks, and maybe my friends sometimes view my risk a little bit more crazy than I do. And so I thought take some risk made more sense because I realized if I need multiple risks to get ahead in life, then brands also need to take multiple risks to get ahead. You know, what you do from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand isn't what a brand usually does to get from five hundred thousand to a million in revenue a year or five million dollars revenue. You've got to take different kinds of calculated risks to do that. You know, I have to use the analogy on, on phone calls with prospects. You know, if this was an airplane, I hope you'd grab my hand, jump out of the plane with your parachute and we'll land it because you've got to take risks as you go to grow as a business, whether it's how you change your operations, who you use for fulfillment, whether it's in-house versus 3PL, who you use for shipping, how you talk about your product, even how you position your product in the market, you know, is a risk to a certain degree. 
And you've got to take all these risks if you want to grow. Because if you hit standstill with your company and things aren't progressing, it's probably because you're trying to do things that got you to where you are, which may not be the things that are going to get you to the next stage of growth in your business. And safe and consistency, in my perspective, it can be complacency. And, and complacency can be the, the death of growth sometimes. Um, I think there's a difference between being content and complacent, being happy with your business and, and being stagnant. This industry can be very grow or die. And so I think imparting that into your full axiom or mantra is, is pretty cool, honestly. And you're referring to, Dwayne, your travels, your, your adventures, and, and you're essentially a, a proclaimed digital nomad because you've, you've lived in six cities over three continents, visited 40 countries. Does this worldliness influence your perspective as, as an e-commerce CEO? Does it, does it give you any sort of special insight? Yeah, it totally does. I mean, I used to tell people, you know, before I moved to the UK and lived in London, even though I'd run campaigns in the UK and Europe, uh, you know, from my bases in Toronto or, or Australia, whatever, I didn't really understand the UK culture because I hadn't lived in the UK, right? Running campaigns in a country is very different than living in a country, regardless of what the country is, even though as a Canadian, uh, and you assume Alex as an American, we both speak English and the British speak English, going over there, culture is a very different country, uh, especially with their efficient natto-ness for like alcohol and drinking. It's like just a whole other culture out there. And so being able to travel to other countries allows me to to a little bit tap into, I think, the culture of different countries and how they work and how they function. Even something as archaic as like, how does their banking system work? Or how does their transit system work and paying for things? Like we are very, we have a very archaic banking system in Canada. So seeing how banking worked in the UK when I lived there, in Australia, or whether you go back to the UK now to see clients and stuff like that, um, I think really helps out for e-commerce because you can say, well, you know, maybe we're not really applying what we know about that country to our UK store, right? Maybe we're not offering the right payment options is why people are not converting. Maybe we're not offering the right payment options when it comes to Germany. That's why people are not converting. So really understanding a culture does really help you when you're working on things from a global perspective. You know, we've got campaigns launched on four continents and 35 different countries. And so trying to understand lots of different countries and how they actually function and how they work and where they are in the stage of like technology and payments is really important because the more you can like localize things for a country that needs it, the more likely people are going to buy from you versus just assuming, oh, we're a Canadian company, we're an American company. We're just going to do what we do here for every other country in the world when things don't work that way, actually. And it's interesting that that perspective that you're sharing with me, Dwayne, feels like that middle part of the Venn diagram where it's both macro and micro because you're thinking on a global scale, but in a in a way where each country is getting the individualized attention that it feels like you feel it deserves. Does that sound accurate? I mean, it's easy to just think one track mind, what's good for Canada, what's good for my business, but to kind of compartmentalize while meshing those two concepts together feels, uh, I don't know, kind of difficult to grasp. And I think it's a pretty impressive way to think about things. Yeah. I don't know if I go the textbook definition of micro macro like you, Alex. That feels like we're back in an economic class in university. But yeah, I think I do think of it that way. I think of like, you know, where we're trying to market globally. And then let's say you take in 35 countries, let's say five or 10 countries to make up, you know, 50 or 70% of your revenue. You know, how do we maximize revenue in those five or 10 countries that make up the majority of our revenue? Because odds are, I'm going to make more money from those, you know, five or 10 countries that make most of my revenue now than trying to get more revenue from the other 25 or 30 countries, potentially, you know, all things we need. So yeah, we try to think about things globally, but locally, because it, it makes sense, even down to, you know, can we do ad copy? 
Do we need to localize different websites? You know, for a lot of our clients, we do things globally. They usually have like an American website, a Canadian website. There's usually a UK website because of, you know, obviously currencies. There's usually a European website because of the Euro. Uh, and then usually there's like an Australian slash New Zealand website, potentially, you know, serve APAC. And if they don't sort of serve APAC, they'll serve it out of America. You know, oftentimes APAC's hard to service because especially Australia, it's just so far, it's expensive to ship there. People often will, you know, focus on like the Americas and sort of EMA or, or Europe as, as a whole. And I'll tell you from, from my experience, I'm not nearly as, as well-traveled as you, but I had the fortune of visiting Ireland last year. And some of the stuff that you mentioned is, is kind of culture shocking, despite everyone speaks English. I had difficulty understanding it, you know, just because of the accents, you know, it, it feels very American, but there are certain cultural things that are just so vastly different. And, and I didn't even live there. I was there for a week um, for my cousin's wedding. I also took away, I don't know, something so intangible from it of this, like, I felt so much smaller in terms of like so many people live on the planet and don't even leave their hometowns. What I'm trying to say is that traveling is one of the best ways that you could possibly learn about almost anything, specifically cultures and, and our influence on them and their influence on us. So I think that's really cool that that is a piece of you, Dwayne. Yeah. I mean, I'm a single gay guy. So most of my money goes towards travel because I'm single. What else am I going to spend the money on at the end of the day? But yeah, Ireland's nice. I got a friend, I got a few friends who are Irish. But yeah, I mean, they speak English, but they got the accent. Things are yeah. just different over there in Ireland. Things are even more different than Northern Ireland versus just Ireland itself. So yeah, we all speak English, but we all speak sort of a different dialect of English. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, I, I have one question that I always ask as the final question to guests. And that essentially revolves around how e-commerce can be a exhausting and stress-induced industry, which almost guarantees people trying to operate 24 hours of the day, seven days a week. So it's important to keep track of, of mental health and work-life harmony. Now, aside from travel, what are some of the things that you do with your with your free time to ensure mental health stability? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Alex. You know, the big thing I've been telling friends for years is like regular sleep. Uh, you know, during the week, I'm in bed by 1030 Last night I was up a bit late, but we won't go into why. But I go into bed around 10 30 during the week. If it's a weeknight, I usually up somewhere between, you know, seven, seven thirty. And really that consistency of getting that sleep, I think really helps with just like my brain being able to shut off and my body being able to recharge if it's been a long day and stuff like that. On weekends, you know, Friday, Saturday night, I go to bed whatever because it's just whatever I sleep in if I want the next day. And then beyond that, I think it's, it's you know, trying to, you know, I love, you know, candy and fried chicken and like things that are bad for like the next person. But I try to eat like healthy things, you know, as much as I can, you know, all things being equal. So I think sort of both getting my sleep uh, and what I eat. And then uh, I do a bit of yoga in the morning. I've got a bicycle. So I bike, you know, pretty regularly between sort of spring and autumn or fall, depending on where you are in the world. And I think between sort of what I eat and sort of sleep and sort of bike in some sort of exercise, I've got a hike group that I go to as well. So I think if you get some sort of exercise, to, especially because I work from home, to get exercise to like leave my condo is really important to me. I think those things have helped outside of the fact that like I try not to work crazy hours, I think like everyone else. Um, we try to set up uh, systems and processes. We use a tool called Notion. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, Notion is kind of like a kind of like a blank canvas. Do whatever you want, wiki. Um, so we use Notion to write out all our processes and systems as an agency. That way, um, our team members in Vancouver or Asia or Africa, wherever they are in the world, can like figure out how to do things while I'm, you know, in my time zone trying to get sleep. And our clients know that we're not available twenty four seven. You know, so we're available 
you know, nine to five or 10 to six or whatever it is. And uh, unless it's really an emergency, like Shopify went down or something's broken, you can't sell stuff. And as you to turn off, most things can wait till Monday, the next business day at the end of the day. I'm glad that you mentioned Notion. We we here at the Beautify use a simpler, uh, a similar service called ClickUp because we're very international. And I think that's uh, that's part of the things that people don't, always understand is with an international, you know, like my team lead is is like a 12 hour time zone difference. So it's it's very interesting when she's getting into work at like, she'll hit me up at like nine or 10 or 11 or something like that. And I'm like getting down at that time period. So being in simpatico communication can, can be difficult, but it sounds like you found a, a really productive way to deal with that without putting anyone through the ringer. And, and I commend you for that. Thank you. Yeah. We try to basically work asynchronously and, and write everything down as much as we can. Uh, we actually use ClickUp as well. So we used to use Asana. And so the last month we've been switching over to ClickUp uh, just to get a new project management tool. And that's really more, for, ClickUp is more for client stuff. And then we use Notion for agency sort of process system stuff uh, just to keep those two things separate. Also, I don't want to put all our systems in one platform because if something happened to that platform, I don't want to switch out and move everything because that just sounds like a real pain in the ass to begin with. But yeah, we try to just work asynchronous as much as we can and over-communicate, even if you think you're over-communicating, it's better to say more than say less when it comes to you know writing things out for someone else who's in a different time zone than you. Wonderful. Well I think I think we said a decent amount in this conversation. Dwayne, I wanna I wanna thank you for stopping by and let's go take some risk. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to thank my guest Dwayne Brown for joining me on the show and come back on Thursday when I talk with Brent Zaradnik, the founder and CEO of AMZ Pathfinder, an Amazon advertising agency that works with brands to optimize their advertising presence on Amazon. For more information about Dwayne, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or follow him on Twitter at Dwayne Brown. And to learn more about Take Some Risk, you can check out their website, takesomerisk.com. That's our show. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then. 